Uh, you look like the part. Like I could, uh, you look like the kind of guy that I'd I'd walk around the back of Kmart, and you just be there huddled in a little tent, just going to town on a paper bag with a bunch of spray paint in it. Jesus. <laughs> uh, you just I don't know. You just look the part. I'm sorry, buddy. It's profiling, but it's true. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's our intro to this episode now. No, it's not. <laughs> it is. I just recorded the whole thing. Man, come on. <laughs> what you douche. Gotcha. This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. This is Jacob Bratz with JLB Morelia, and you are listening to the Herpeticulture Podcast. What's going on, guys? This is episode 20 of the Herpeticulture Podcast. This is Jacob Bratz with JLB Morelia. And as always, I'm here with... Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. <laughs> episode 20. It's almost Christmas. Almost Christmas. And we have a special Christmas gift for you this this early December's Eve. As we have Mr. Harlan Wall of Wall-to-Wall Reptiles on. Yay! Right. A round of applause for Harlan. <laughs> Thank you. I put, I wore a bow just for you guys. A whole tuxedo. <laughs> we can't we can't see it, but we no can feel wrapping. it. <laughs> What's uh, happening? Not too much. What are you guys up to? S- snow free. Snow free. In our yeah. corner of the. Uh, snow free. Yeah. We had a, a skiff of snow earlier. Not it didn't snow today, but I think the last of it melted off today. So, oh, you know, okay. It was nice this afternoon, but boy, at night it's really getting cold here. Not good shipping weather, I must say. Yeah, no. Maybe like maybe turn your mic toward you more because it's like pointing straight up. Maybe that's why that might be part of the problem. All right, here, we'll try Is that better. I don't okay. know. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, having some mic problems. Yeah, technical difficulties. Even I'm struggling. Tables and a microphone. Okay. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, we're not getting any snow, but we're supposed to go to Charlotte tomorrow for the Dart Frog event at at Frog Daddy's place, and it's supposed to snow there. And we were kind of de- contemplating whether or not we should go or not because I didn't want to be stuck there because of the snow. It's supposed to be like six inches on Sunday and like three inches Saturday night, but a lot of people are saying that's probably not actually going to happen. <clears throat> so, huh? You guys are lucky you get. So many more, uh, the frequency of shows out there, and of course the attendance is probably so much better than out here. It's just, um, I'm in no man's land. I have to travel distance, distances to get to anywhere, any decent shows. Yeah, so. Yeah, you have to go to like. I envy you for that. Isn't there, there's got to be a show in Denver. Yeah, there, there's definitely there's the, the Denver shows. Uh, you know, that's, you know, that's like a 400 mile trip for me. Yeah, but it, that's a trip. Oh, wow. You know. That's that's one way, you know, over the overpasses. Jeez. So. Yeah, that's a haul. Over Don't the envy river, that. Through the woods to reptile shows we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you are a man of many talents. Yeah. You're, well, <laughs> that sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> Your name has come up on this show a frequent number of times. Yeah. Justin, uh, I swear, man, Justin talks about you more than uh, probably anybody else. 
Well, now you just make it sound creepy. Well, I'm going to make it sound creepy. He sends me love letters now and then. So. <laughs> okay. I sent you a cup of my blood. Did you get my blood? <laughs> he writes a poem to you every uh, single night. Uh, I pulled out some teeth with some pliers and sent them to you. Did you get them yet? And a lock yeah, of my I, hair. I, I, I got it. I promptly stomped on the package. No, <laughs> no. That's very kind of you guys to say. It's, it, it's an honor to be on your show. I really appreciate the opportunity to... to uh, to join you guys so thank you very much yeah well, we definitely appreciate you coming on you've been a big help cool you know I, For it's, sure. it's nice to know and i've mentioned this in previous episodes that like if i have any questions there's someone i can call or message and i don't feel like i'm bothering them and i know you're <laughs> gonna give me like a straight answer and it's uh it's, it's well, making me rethink how i do you know how i do business and i know there's a handful of other guys at least in the chondro corner of the the herp community that that agree and are kind of doing the same thing and it's it's a nice change of pace i feel like there's there's in this business there's certainly no experts and and we're all just i always say we're all just kind of stumbling along um you know uh, trying not to trip over what's in front of us fall and uh so we kind of like like a guy walking through a dark room has his hand out kind of um feeling his way around and and if you know if you're a, a little further ahead you reach your hand back and you pull the guy forward and everyone on the trail is putting their hand forward reaching out for the guy that's ahead of them and hoping that they'll put their hand back and and pull you forward i i'm always putting my hand ahead asking someone for a little help and guidance and uh so it's you know it's our kind of our our role to to uh, bring others along and and try to help them avoid the the follies that we've experienced because we're going to experiencing and experience them you know along the way so, so yeah, yeah there's a lot of those people that will be leading everyone right off a cliff oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> here walk Somebody this like, way, ah! this way. <laughs> oh that's really great oh man yeah. anyway so what are all you guys breeding this year what's uh what's what's on the burners what's what's in the cooker Condros. <laughs> he's got chondras going um i've got some uh pop ones breeding hopefully right now and uh yeah i got three pairs going this year you know i've gotten so. numerous locks from my chondros but i don't know that i'll have any ag action from them well i'm kind of in the same boat it's been a really late start for me um you know things like barometric pressure is a is a big instigator when you have storm <clears throat> storm fronts moving through you know those are those are uh great times to pair things and we just had such a dry year here until recently we we've got a little moisture and it's funny man you know as soon as it started snowing i went out and then their snakes are locking up and i'm like yeah uh-huh. that's what you're supposed to do mm-hmm. what have you been doing uh, yeah yeah you know, so it's yeah, kind of cool we've been getting a lot of rain here lately and i think that's really kicked mine into gear cause yeah. they had, it was it was funny they had no interest they they had taken a really long break and they hadn't touched each other they're in the same case they haven't touched each other in forever and then all that rain started coming in and now they're just locking like crazy yeah, like I every love other it. night, every day, in the mornings I find them. But I woke up the other morning at like 4 a.m. just cause, and I went in and checked I swear on the snakes. if I lived on the East Coast, I'd be praying for like hurricanes and stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, this is a great hurricane. <laughs> so, <laughs> snakes are locked, but I hope a pine tree doesn't come through my room and kill everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. those uh, those fronts really do help out with all the rain we've gotten. I've definitely seen uh, a bit more action with mm-hmm. uh, some of my pairings. Um, once everything dried up recently, I took out one of my males because they had stayed separated and he actually went into a shed cycle. So pulled in for a few days, going to put him 
You gotta put them back once he sheds and whatnot. So, cool. We'll see what happens with that. But I, yeah, I woke up at four a.m. the other day, the other morning though, when my pair was locked, and then I woke up again at like eight or nine, and they were still locked in the same position. Oh. So they were, who knows how long they were going yeah, at it? Going but. at it, man. Dang. That I had a really really nice pair locked up here the other day, and uh, you know I love I love how chondros go at it. They they like they lock for hours, and then when your Amazons are doing it, they they look like you know, like three fourths of the male's bodies wrapped around the female, yeah. like he's, he's doing some kind of crazy knots or something. He's like making macrame or something with it. <laughs> it's really great. But uh, yeah, that's it's awesome. nice to see that kind of stuff going on. But uh, well, that's a good yeah. segue into how you cycle. Like we, we wanted to talk to you about how you cycle. Because you've mentioned it in other shows, uh, GP, uh, GTB Kiva Radio and stuff in the past, but you, you mentioned that you had never really gone fully in-depth with how you go about cycling. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, um, oh, man, and I'm, I've, got a, um, I've got a Solomon Isle boa, a tree boa that's grabbed here that I'm waiting feverishly on for uh, her. To, she's not one that I bred. She's, she came in grabbed, but, um, you know, Boas in general, you're like, it's like hurry up and wait. You know, you check and you check and you check, mm-hmm. kind of a thing. But, but um, yeah. So I, as far as cycling goes, you know, uh, I do things a little differently than than a lot of people. I don't use temperature um, to to cycle my my tropical animals, and um, uh, so so instead I use diet uh, to do the di- the deed, and uh, and it tends to work pretty well. Uh, I got. I got into that, uh, well, man, it's, it's during near 20 years ago, 20, 20, 20 some odd years ago. Um, I was really interested in, in, uh, green trees, of course, but at the time I had, uh, blood pythons kind of sucked me into their vortex. And, um, you know, back in the day, people had a hard time breeding blood pythons. They were always considered as being, uh, aggressive, uh, which is not the case, and um, and they were considered to be fairly difficult, especially you know wild caught imports, and we worked with a lot of that then. Um, so and, and and they still do come in, but but a lot of uh, you know captive hatch babies come in now, and so that makes blood pythons a lot easier too. And then there are a, a plethora of of really talented uh, blood python breeders, so it's it's a lot easier. The scene's very different now than it was then. So. Um, what I noticed was when I would cool these snakes, uh, oftentimes you'd, somebody would wind up with a respiratory infection. And, um, and then, it's, of course, it's during the time when you're trying to pair snakes um, that, that they start showing these symptoms. And then mm-hmm. instead of one snake being sick, now you've got two snakes that are sick. You know, it, it, it just was such a headache. And I, I kept sitting there thinking, there's got to be a better way. Nobody likes putting... Um, you, you can treat them with antibiotics. It seems like uh, I noticed it with berms and with blood. It seems like once they got a, a respiratory infection, it was like a yearly occurrence. Um, you know, you can expect it to going to rear its head again the next year. And and some of that I kind of think is you know uh, now uh, we would all go Nido, you know. But back right. then <laughs> it was just like oh my snake's got the sniffles and. Um, you know, personally, I, my opinion is that NIDO is a lot more prevalent uh, in collections. I, you know who I think has NIDO? I, people who keep snakes. <laughs> you know, kind of, uh, that, that really, that, you know, it sounds, sounds kind of like simplistic, but, you know, that, that virus is very closely related to the common cold 
And um, I think when conditions are at a suboptimal level on whatever, whether it's your humidity or your temperatures or uh, the snake's not getting enough food or whatever the, the case, if there's something that's not quite uh, rounded out in the parameters of keeping that animal, uh, its chances of having issues be it NIDO or anything else, go up significantly. Right. Stress is the stress is the number one killer of reptiles. People, oh, well, you know, parasites kill them. Well, in the wild, parasites really not what kills the snake. Yeah, it's more of a um, symbiotic relationship you know, than anything else. We see the else. problems with parasites when they come in, um, and we see we see them because uh, we've we've kiltered the system. Uh, when stress levels go up, immune system goes down, and then simple stuff takes over. And things that it, it, I think of parasites are to uh, um, reptiles, wild caught import reptiles. Parasites are to reptiles what tenants are to apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they kind of go hand in hand. It's this arms race, this biological arms race of, um, you know, I'm going to. Uh, I'm looking for a host, and the other guy's like, I'm trying to keep the host, the the, the guys within me, the, the parasites within me at bay, you know, and and so it's uh, this ongoing kind of arms race, keeping things in a biological balance. The, the, really, these tenants don't want to burn their apartment down, right? right? They need a place to live. The, the, the parasites do. So, so in the wild, you know, their immune system is able to uh, to take care of of those issues fairly well, keep things in check fairly well. But when we, we pull it out of the wild and we put it, you know, in a, this foreign environment, suddenly uh, the stress levels go up, immune system goes down, and something simple takes over. Parasite loads get way out of whack where one bacteria, intestinal bacteria, or another gets out of balance. Um, so so anyway, you know, I here I was struggling with these bloods, and I thought, there's got to be a better way uh, to, to cycle these animals, and and it hit me. Uh, it it was I was like, oh, you know, this is a tropical zone. The temperatures really aren't deviating within this bandwidth um, very much. The the there's not so much deviation here like you see in a temperate zone. Mm-hmm. And there was this, there's a guy, uh, Dr. Bern Bechtel, um, who was. Uh, he's a, a dermatologist as well as a herpetologist, and he he did a lot of uh, work with reptiles that had abnormal coloration uh, or patterns of, of variations. And and back then, this is you know like 50s, 60s. Um, not a lot of people really knew what it takes to breed, breed snakes. They get a clutch of eggs, like, wow, that's cool. How how would I do that again? Who knows? You know, it's just kind of. A lot of animals that were produced in captivity were imports that already came in gravid, and and uh, they couldn't re- make it repetitious. Mm-hmm. They couldn't expect to have a next clutch. So, so anyway, he he was watching animals. In, people would bring him a, an interesting looking snake. He's the first guy to hatch an albino corn snake. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that puts things into perspective. Um, and he didn't do it out of this this zeal, the chase for. For uh, Benjamins, you know, he wasn't he wasn't looking to to sell them and get rich selling. I mean, he sold them, and he, I'm sure he did very well with uh, them back then. But but he was trying to figure out this is an interesting color anomaly. Is this uh, is this a disease related thing? Is this is this something that's um, 
is it a genetic inheritance? Yeah. Is is it what's the anomaly? What's the, the basis of this anomaly? Mendelian so experimentation. Yeah, <clears throat> and so uh, when that was going on, he he realized he was like out in the bush, and you'd see uh, you know a, a breeding group of garter snakes. You know, it's like a breeding ball of garter snakes. Um, anybody that's seen that, it's like unforgettable, like a sea of snakes, and they're, you know, um, males writhing over a female. And, um, and, he, and this is in the spring, early spring. You'd see corn snakes, he'd find some corn snakes locked up, you know, just after they emerged from hibernation. And he started thinking, I wonder if this hibernation period, it has something to do with um, instigating, you know, spermatogenesis in males, um, oogenesis in females, and, and causing these animals to go through a uh, follicular development cycle. And, and, um, and, and that's, maybe that's their, a clue. So he, he did an artificial hibernation that we call brumation. And he found out, how now it's like, it's, uh, it's like clockwork. It's simple. You put them together after you pull them out of brumation and, you know, uh, start feeding them out. You, you put them, feed them up. Uh, um, after they've been off food and, and in hibernation, and they have a shed, and you put them together, and bada-bing, they're breeding. And mm-hmm. then you're getting eggs, and, he, you know, the fecundity, the number of eggs that were fertile um, and, the, and the fertility uh, went up significantly. And so when he published this, a lot of people were paying attention, and, and they got excited about it, and they started trying to just apply it across the board. And you can imagine if you try to hibernate, tropical species, what would happen? <laughs> You'd have some significant losses. So yeah. they realized, well, that's, you know, we have to adjust what we're doing here. And so if you flash forward to like the 80s, um, 70s, 80s, early 90s, um, uh, I'm sure you guys have heard about the Bible, uh, reproductive husbandry of pythons and boas. Uh, Jerry Marzak and Dick Ross uh, wrote this this book. And, um, and they have these charts, and you'll see where they they lowered the temperature a little bit instead of, you know, significantly like you would do with a colubrid. And, well, you know, it worked. You'd get some breedings, but they weren't. Don't bank on it. It wasn't consistent enough that you could build a business out of it or, you know, that you could really rely on the results you were, you were seeking. And this was so, with, uh, so then like, and this was with pythons? a little further. I'm sorry, again? And this was with pythons? People were trying this, dropping this it was, just like a little bit? pythons and boas, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, they wrote, this is a really great book. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, among herpers, it, it was, you know, the in the 90s, that was like the book to I have. I think that's the one and, Riley um, just got recently. It's, you know, a lot of uh, nomenclature has changed, but there's still some really great mm-hmm. information in there, and it's, I think it's a great book. But uh, but then they showed this, uh, another chart where they, where they dropped the, the temperatures um, more, but they started doing this, well, to circumvent getting a respiratory infection or, or other ailments, they would raise the temps back up dur- during the daytime, bring them back up to those optimal, and that's where we get, you know, you hear everybody, everybody saying the daytime highs and the nighttime lows. Right. And that's where they were cycling it for their however many month period they chose to, to uh, you know, put these things through a, a cycle to get them to breathe. And that's what they're doing. But even when I'm doing this, I'm still noticing that a percentage of my collection would wind up with an ailment, like a, like a respiratory infection. And to me, um, what's the percentage of acceptable respiratory infections that you want in your collection? I think zero. I don't care what the number of animals you have in your collection. You'd like it to be zero. That's your goal. And that's where – so I was like, there's got to be a better way. So I thought, well, laying there in bed one night, I was like, well, 
it's not it's not a warm cool or uh, warm cold seasonal variation it's it's this uh, you know this influx of rain it's this monsoonal dry season wet season uh sort of scenario and i was like you know i had i'd worked with m- my mother and i had uh, a big fascination with frogs and we were doing dart frogs and all sorts of frogs um and chameleons and stuff and so we were i was like oh well you know maybe I, do i have to set up like a uh, you know, misters and a rain chamber, and then I have to have a drainage system, and it started, started sounding more like a headache than a, than a help. And um, and so I, then it hit me like a ton of bricks, and I just sat right up, and I was like, oh, it's it's not the rain, it's what the rain does. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you've been through this, instead of a period of hibernation, they're they're going through a period of estivation. Where no, everybody's holed up in this during the dry season. Uh, it doesn't. It's, there's the cost, the the risk to reward ratio really sucks during that time of the year. And so, uh, you know, reptile collectors in different countries, that's not when they're out collecting stuff. It's it's pretty meager results uh, to be in the bush crashing around because the animals are like, it doesn't help me to go out there and look for something. It's the the risk versus the reward is is too high. And so right. they hold they're hold up kind of waiting for the rain. And when the rain comes, the plants jump up, the uh, the insects go bananas on the plants, and the insectivores and herbivores go crazy on the plants and the insects, and it all fits together like like a hand in a glove. Um, and this triggers something um, metabolically inside of those animals, the, the snakes. Suddenly, you went from this time of um, the, the lean days to, to now you've got this consistent influx of food that you can rely on and you start building up your fat reserves and the flip the, the flip the switch is flipped in the head and it says you've got the junk in the in the trunk to pay your taxes to <laughs> replicate reproduction is a tax and it's a it's a stress but it's a necessary stress when you couple that necessary stress of reproduction with an unnecessary uh, tax or stress a burden like suboptimal temperatures your your probability for running into some sort of a health problem go up significantly, and so um, so I said, well, w- this is what we could do to excise it is we're we're going to change the diet because it's not really the rain that's doing it. It's, it's suddenly they've got this bonanza of food. Now we all know that a fat snake is as lousy a breeder as a skinny snake, and so so kind of what I did is I. I looked at a calendar, um, and I, I blocked off a section and said, "Okay, during this part of the the year, right right now, during this month, here's my this is my game plan." And I, I select like six snakes, right? So let's say I, I got um, or f- five snakes, you know. So let's say I get uh, um, oh, three girls and two boys, right? Mm-hmm. And I stagger the cages. I use uh, plastic tubs, very fancy kidding but um but effective they're really effective and i I put select those five tubs and i stagger them on a shelf male female male female right and then um and this is just my technique i always tell people look if it works for you and you're comfortable with it you're not experiencing any issues do what works for you there's a jillion different uh paths to enlightenment right that whatever it is that you're there's a lot of different ways to get from here to there um but for me, this really worked, and it, it is a game changer for me. And it has a lot of benefits. I think it more closely um, mimics what happens in the wild, 
and it's a little more naturalistic for them. And, and when I started doing this, my instances of respiratory infections and, and issues like that dropped significantly, you know, for the, the population size that I have. And so, um, so with these five snakes, I've got them staggered male, female, and I, I only do this with the adult snakes that are um, that I'm going to breed, that are of, of the body constitution to be able to breed size and age. Um, and so I take them off food completely, no food at all. I shut it off like a light switch for three months. Um, they still get water, and your snake isn't going to lose any weight if it's got you know, optimal breeding weight to begin with. Um, so I still provide them with water, but they, I give them absolutely no food. And then I start to feed them again. Um, and at the end of this, this three-month period, I start to feed them again. And uh, when I feed them, I'm not feeding them normally. Now I'm feeding them meals that are like a half or a third the size of a normal meal. And kind of the, the simplistic way I've, I've used in the past to, to explain this is sort of like the, the, the Thanksgiving dinner scenario. If, if I said... Jacob, Justin, come on over, man. We're going to have some Thanksgiving dinner, and you're invited. And I stuffed you guys to the gills. You got the mashed potatoes and gravy, and you got you got some good roasted bird and, and whatever, cranberry sauce and a big old piece of pie. And you're just fat and sassy at the end, and you're stuffed to the gills. And, and I say, hey, let's go take a run around the block, and let's see who can beat each other around the block. You guys look at me and like, buzz off, dude. We're going to take a, a, a run. We're going to race to your couch, and we're going to drool on your couch pillows. And um, I'd throw up at the phone. And, and that's where you guys will be, lunked out there. But imagine if instead I said, guys, come over tomorrow, um, but you've got to be here at 6 in the morning. And I gave you, when you got there, I gave you a half a glass of orange juice, a half a piece of toast, and an egg. And you're like, this is cute, nice. Where's the rest? I said, ah, I'll, give it, I'll give you a little more in, in two hours. And every two hours, I fed you this little piddle into the meal. Healthy stuff, but... But it's certainly not satiating your, your appetite, right? But every two hours you're getting it. What's interesting is at the end of the day, if we measure the caloric intake for you guys laying on the couch, drooling on my pillows, versus the caloric intake of you guys getting fed this meal every two hours, you will have actually consumed more calories than, than you guys asleep on the couch. And you have the energy to, to beat my ass in a race around the block. One thing is because I'm a fat guy, but <laughs> you know, you know. But but really, you're going to have the energy to do it all. And you know, if you look at um, like Olympians that are training really hard, and um, uh, let's say track stars, they're they're running every day and they're they're operating at a, a practicing at, at their peak performance. Um, they're they're getting this. Uh, they, they can be eating all the right foods for for a training. Um, situation, and if you tried to, like a herpetoculturist, we try to breed everything. Um, if you tried to breed a pair of those, it, biology would would really not put things in their favor. It would because the, there's a switch in the brain that's flipped off, and it says, "Nope, that's too much. You're already, you know, running at, at the peak." You're burning up everything that we're giving you. You have not an inch of, you know, not a, an ounce of fat on your system. Um, you're a, a mean, live running machine, but you don't have what it takes to to re replicate. And so it doesn't allow you. Your you, your your flick your your switch is flipped off, right? Um, and and so likewise, 
when they're off season and they're kind of laying back and relaxing, they they've got the wherewithal to do it. And um, and this is the same thing um, with your reptiles. You know, they have to have that. If you if you fed them great big meals, it's not going to work. You're going to make a fat sausage on a branch. Um, if you fed them at the intervals that I'm feeding them at, and so I'm feeding them once every three days. So I'm feeding them a very small meal, but I'm feeding them at this this really intense mm-hmm. um, uh, pace. You know, when, when you feed a snake, like like think of any of your snakes. If you fed it, this it's like giving it a piece of popcorn, and the snake's head comes right up, like where's the rest? And you're like, nope, <laughs> you'll get it in three days. And you put the snake back in the cage, and it's like. You know how they are. It's like that just primes them. They're ready for the yeah. next one. And you're like, no, nope, yeah, yeah. three days from now. And that causes their metabolism is, is up, their activity levels up. But at some point or another, there's a shift. And um, biologically, metabolically, whatever, the snake's like, you know something? It was it was lean for a while, but now we're in the time of good and plenty. Uh, we've got a smorgasbord. We've got the food we need on a consistent, regular basis, like clockwork. We can count on it. You've got what it takes to reproduce, and that will send both of them into their cycles, this, this spermatogenesis and oogenesis, and and pretty soon the female will start emitting pheromones. At some point in there, her body says, "Okay, next." Let's let out some pheromones. We're, we've got follicles producing. We need to attract, get some males over here. And um, so the only way you can really tell that these things are going is either you're using an ultrasound and you're gauging things there. Um, I'm a little more old school than that. I think that works great, and it's awesome to have those tools. But, but um, the males are my perfect little uh, you know, canary in the coal mine, and I can watch them. Um, and you'll see them. They'll start just cruising the cage. They're, they're like restless. Uh, and pretty soon when you open that cage up and you offer it the mouse, it's like, I don't want that. I got something I else on my mind. Yeah. And this isn't yeah. what I asked for. And, yeah. So, you know, um, I call this the big Mac theory. <clears throat> um, if I, if I offered you boys the choice between a big Mac or a night with a supermodel, I think the big Mac's probably going to get cold. And <laughs> no, no comment. Like a, a yeah, step, a step above the psychology of a snake, you know. Um, and and so it's the same. He smells Chanel number no. five in in the cage to the left or the right of him, and he's like, you know what? I have another interest in my head, and it, it ain't a Big Mac. And so, um, so as soon as he says, I'm done. What's just interesting is during this period. Um, females oftentimes, even when you put the male in with them and they're still, uh, they're, they're in the act of copulating or whatever, uh, females, they're, initially their feeding response actually goes up considerably. I mean, they, their appetite, they're like, they're, they're pounding it all because it's, it's all going to reproduction. So they're like, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. And um, I'm, I'm talking about food, not the other. Um, <laughs> but, it, <laughs> but anyway, um, so I can I can kind of use the males as my gauge for where things are at, and when I see this response in in a male now now any any I don't care what cycling method you're using you're gonna you're gonna have some some instances where you just strike out and you're like it's not working. Some of this has to do with compatibility, and this is why I, I choose like say five or six snakes, stagger them that way because I've got well I've got this female I really would love to see her bred by that male, but if that doesn't work out. Um, maybe I'll try 
that male with this female or this female with that male, that kind of thing. You've, you've got options there. It's always smart to have options yeah, back because up. compatibility, it, you know how it is, dude. When you're, when you're sitting on the bus and there's people all around and there's this girl sitting next to you, I don't care how much bump, bumps of the bus hits, you, your hand doesn't accidentally land on her hand and start holding her hand. Um, you know, when you're on the busload of people and you have all these other um, potentials to pick from, maybe, right? But if, maybe if she's the last person on the bus, maybe then. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, as the night wears on and after enough beers, she becomes more attractive. I don't know if that is. Um, <laughs> it's, it's all compatibility. It's timing. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, you know, if you met this girl earlier in life, she might hate your guts. But a little later in life, she goes, you know, he's all right. And so it can have a lot to do with timing. You can have a male and a female, and, and you put them together at one time of the year, and they have no interest in, in each other, and you go, is, is, is my male gay? What's going on? And, but the next year you put them together, and they're going at it like crazy. You're like, well, what was the matter with you? What took you off you know, the, the charts last year? And, um, you know, why were, why were we sitting on the bench last year? This kind of thing. So, so anyway, having some options there is good. So let's say I take the male out of um, one cage and uh, out of his cage and I place him into, I usually take a male and I put it into the female's enclosure. Um, so let's say I take that male and I put him into the female to the right and uh, nothing happens. There's no, no activity taking place whatsoever. Um, I leave him in for three to five days, probably five days. This gives him a little time for things to warm up. But at the end of five days, I'm not seeing any kind of action at all. One's on one side of the cage and one's on the other side of the cage, and I'm not seeing the, the fireworks. I pull him out of the cage, and I'll put him in with a female on the other side of the cage, on the, on the, on the, on the other side of his cage, on the left side. And, and bada-bing, man, they're, they're either locked up. Sometimes it's within moments. Um, with a really uh, a performer male mm -hmm. or um, a receptive pair, whatever the case may be. Sometimes it takes that three to five days, and suddenly you start seeing the activity that you were looking for. It's funny. Um, as soon as I put my boy in with my girl, he was all over her. See? I mean, yeah, he didn't even, so, didn't even perch up. I mean, he went straight to her. Like, I watched him just a beeline. It was ridiculous. I love and it. And she I love wanted nothing it. to you know, do and, with and him for a you while. You can take but... that same male and go, oh, he's a stud breeder. Put him in with another girl. Another girl. And you may not see anything in this. A lot of this has to do with what pheromones is she emitting, or if she's if she's like not compatible with him, she's just like no, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think you can instigate compatibility with another uh, scenario that we'll get to in a minute. I call it my daisy chaining theory. Um, but but first, we're, when you when you see this going on, you, you want to see as many um, copulation sessions uh, going on as you can before you're going to separate these snakes. And you'll notice um, uh, this leads into my next theory is I call the business trip theory. Um, you'll notice that at some point or another, a male starts to become a little more lax about his, um, his breeding. He kind of sitting on his laurels and he's Gets slowing too down. Comfortable. Yeah. It, it's <laughs> like, you know how it is. If you're getting it all the time, then pretty soon you're like, Honey, I just kind of want to watch it for the rest yeah. of the movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the middle of The Simpsons. Can we wait? Yeah, you know, yeah. That's what, when you're a little jaded, right? But if you go on a business trip for 10 days, when you come back, you're like, girl, shut off The Simpsons. I, I want to show you something. Come here. You yeah, know, it's, yeah. it's, it's simplistic. It sounds silly. But if you kind of equate it to what you see 
it's biology and um vertebrates aren't that different when it comes to a lot of these 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 hormonal cues or whatever it is anyway um so when things slow down for this boy i take him on a business trip one thing i like about having tubs um is that they're very transportable uh, if i have a problem in a rack if you if you heaven forbid if you wound up with mites in a rack now you got a real problem if you have tubs and you find a cage that has mites in it, you can isolate that cage, you can treat those animals, and you don't wind up with a rack that's you know, teeming with um, mobile vectors, right? So mm-hmm. I, I really like tubs because they're kind of self-contained units. You can have them stacked just like in a, um, in a rack, but you can move things around if you need to. So I'll take this, rat, this tub with the, the boy and I'll put him in a completely separate room where he's not going to be picking up any kind of cues pheromonally from any females. He's on his own. He's kind of isolated from the group. And while he's in that stage, what's interesting is you can give him 10 days there, right? So uh, after a couple days on his own, you go in there and you show him that rat again. He's like, oh, I forgot about this. I like these, man. I was missing. I didn't even think about it. I'll take that. And he eats it. And now you've just poured jet fuel back in his system he's ready to rock and roll for session two right you give him a chance to digest that but suddenly he's he's uh interested in food where before he had no interest now it's different when we're talking about a lot of uh, other species blood pythons uh amazon tree boas emeralds a lot of these animals will continue to feed all the way through with boas until parturition to like two weeks before or even a week before parturition um, they'll continue to feed. I generally feed gravid females smaller meals than normal. Um, I think it's a safer thing to do. Right. Uh, but but that doesn't deviate from where I was at when we were cycling them. We would feed them small meals. So I just continue with this. If they're taking it, I'll offer it to them until they stop. With pythons, most pythons, Burmese pythons, um, certainly green tree pythons, a lot of other python species will just like a light switch, man. They just turn off and they have no interest in food. But you get them away from what's causing that disinterest in food, the pheromones of female, suddenly they, their appetite wakes up. So now he's over there on his own digesting a rat. Meanwhile, back in the snake room, this girl who had no interest in him earlier, look, if a male can smell pheromones, so can a female, mm-hmm. right? So, so you take the girl that had no interest, you put her in with a girl that has been being copulated with for hours on end for the last several days. You put, put them together. And they did this study uh, with human females where they, uh, I think the researcher is locked up somewhere. I think I've told this story before. But <laughs> basically, um, you know, the guy that was doing the study, he took all these, what are 20 college girls and put them in a room and had them type eight hours a day. They was probably during their summer break and they got paid a piddlance to be involved in this uh, scientific study. And at the end of the week, they took blood samples from them. These girls had no idea what they were doing. They were just in there typing. But the close proximity of all these women in the same room, by the end of the study, they were all on the same cycle. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's so weird. when you take <laughs> this girl that had no interest and you put her in with a girl that's been been bred and has, you know, consistently had been with a male, um, suddenly she's like, oh my gosh, what am I thinking? 
the big dance, and I don't have my hair done, and where's my nail polish? I better get my makeup on. Where's that dress? <laughs> I better. I, you've already had three dances, and I don't. I'm not even ready. What am I doing? I'm I'm a wallflower, you know. And it, it, biologically, there's no thought process to this, but it's it's you know uh, this biologically when her her system picks up on the pheromones of what's being laid down, she's like, there's competition. I'm late. I'm late for the yeah. big gig. Let's get let's get going. And sometimes it doesn't happen all the time, but you'd be surprised. Sometimes you you've got this girl who's now you've you've used this sort of I say infectious um, connection of of lustfulness. Just kidding. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, you've, it, it it kind of primes the engines. Now you get ready to, when the male's ready to come back into action. You you separate those girls. You put the the male in with the original girl that he'd been breeding. And um, she's either like, dude, you got me, I'm done, leave me alone. Or they copulate a few more times, which is great to see. And, and then, she's, then she's done, right? And as soon as that happens, he, then you take that male and you put him in the other, other cage, and you'd be surprised how many times you've now daisy-chained this. And you, it, it ha- really helps to add to consistency in, in your production. Mm-hmm. And so... I really like that, um, but what I like about this this method is that it 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 serves several purposes. The the potential for infection goes down because I think it more closely approximates what's going on in nature. Um, but it's also good for other avenues of business. So when you think about like the mom and pop breeder, um, the hobbyist breeder, they you you we've all seen it. They they um they they want to take it up they have a, a little a little bit of success and they, they hatch out a clutch of eggs and they they get the babies started feeding and they start selling them like wow this was great you know what i need to do i need to step it up i need to increase this the numbers of my collection and that next time that they when they they stepped it up they took their proceeds they put it right back into the business they're trying to be diligent and if they get what they're wishing for, sometimes it's the biggest curse. If they have five uh, green tree females, they try to breed ten girls, and if only five of them take, which would be wonderful, right, mm-hmm. it's going to swamp them. They, they, if, 20 eggs a clutch, yeah. and, and they got snakes coming out their ears during a tight, if you're talking about on a, on a, a temperature-cycled regimen, we all see this problem. I see it all the time. Um, uh, the, the small guy tries to go bar check, right? And, um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it can have disastrous results if you don't have the wherewithal. These people were sending out nice, fat, sassy, happy, healthy babies. Their customers were very happy. They stepped up production. They got overwhelmed. And now they're sending out these spindly babies that aren't well started. Animals are dying on them. They're, they're pulling their hair out. And they're thinking, what if I, oh, I got what I wished for and what a curse. And so... This is the sort of the the feast or famine that people people can experience. So um, we've all been in the situation where I get a phone call. The phone rings and the guy's like, "Hey man, I saw that you had this green tree for sale or this Amazon for sale. It's a really you know whatever the species X for sale. It's really cool. Um, I really want it. How much is it? What are you willing to do with it for?" And I say, "Well, I've got it it's for fifteen hundred bucks." I'm like. Fifteen hundred bucks? Wow! I I thought it would be like three grand. Fifteen hundred dollars—that's a pretty good price. Uh, oh, I really uh, I really want this snake. I said, okay, great. Well, let me know what I can do to help. And they go, well, uh, 
you know what would really help see oh, i've got some carpet pythons that are breeding now so in two months about i'll have eggs two months after that those eggs are going to hatch two months uh, you know a month after that i'll have them started after that another month i'll get them all sold hey can you hold that snake for like six or eight months for me <laughs> no <laughs> yeah you know and this is because the guy's he's relegated to making his his babies he's during one time of the year because he's going yeah. with temperature cycling and he's, so he's kind of re- relegated to doing it it's during the rest of the year he he doesn't have two nickels to rub together and and then you know right after production egg egg season he's like i'm i'm rich you know and and um it's it's not very conducive to uh, not the steady flow that you'd want when you want to be able to buy a snake if if you got the cash in hand, cash is king, and you, you'll get it right away. And so um, during the off-season when most people aren't producing, if you're producing babies during that time, well, you're, you're able to market them, and oftentimes at better prices than you can when there's a deluge of people who have the same things for sale. Mm-hmm. And so, so when I told you that I grab the calendar and I kind of plan things out, and I take this group of five, and then two, three months later, I take this group, group of five and three months after that i take this group of five some of them are going to hit some of them are going to miss but you can do the diet cycling any time of the year I, my temperatures uh, uh, stay the same throughout the whole year and how so you're you're able to kind of manipulate now you're able to provide something when maybe the, the guy the next guy can't um so you get a good price for it you're not overwhelmed with a, a deluge of babies so you're able to get these guys started while you've got eggs waiting in the wings and you're you're and while you've just finished selling off the the last uh of the of the previous uh grouping of snakes and and so you've got um you've got a, a little more you can breathe easy now you can have that larger collection without um stepping on your own toes mm-hmm. uh you, it allows you to say girl you were a great producer for me this year I appreciate it. This boy, he was a stellar breeder. But you know what? I'm going to give them a break this year. I'm going to breed those instead. And and that so now you're it it gives the longevity of what you're doing um a a lot more distance. Absolutely. How how so that's kind of in a nutshell. That's there's a lot of little tricks that when you got you put it two together and you're not seeing that compatibility. <laughs> Sometimes you can instigate it using the shed trick. I'm sure you've all heard. Mm-hmm. We take moist shedding of a, a fresh fresh first shed not first but for the fresh shed of a male that's that's uh reproductively active and you put a little, little um distilled water spritzed on there and zip lock it shut squeeze all the air squeeze zip lock it shut throw it in the freezer and then when you need that you can you can stretch that over the cage and you can instigate that competitive response because you don't want to put two morelia in the same cage but but um uh, you know, there's some snakes. I I used to breed boa constrictors, and we did boa constrictors in in harems. You know, and and um, you didn't see if you have enough females and you put a couple males in there. There's no uh, kind of um, uh, ferocious com- competition. There's enough females to service, and and it, it works just fine. Some species are are fine in a, a sort of a, a more communal um, breeding setup, and sometimes I think it seems to kind of like all the girls in the classroom typing, it kind of puts things all on the same page, and it can it, it can work for you too. But some species, specifically Morelia, you know, you could have disastrous results. Yeah, bad news. That. So when you're offering them, so those that kind of gives you a little idea of um, 
you know, I had one, one guy told me, um, like, that I, the guy that I was talking with today on the phone, he's like, I can't believe you'd, you'd share this kind of stuff. That, you know, that, wow, that could give you a real edge. But I'm like, you know what? It's not about competition. It's, um, I, I, I think of temperature cycling as kind of an almost archaic way of doing. We, the, the ball was dropped when we would try to apply what works for um, temperate-dwelling species to tropical dwelling species and you know well they're all reptiles they all breathe the same <laughs> I, I don't like that there's, there's you know there there are differences and and um you know we're just kind of having to look for those clues and certainly maybe it doesn't apply to all tropical species that's just kind of casting a very broad net but but um you know, whether you're in, in uh, Accra, Ghana, or Paramaribo, uh, Suriname, or, or Georgetown, Guyana, or... Um, Jacksonville. Uh, whatever, <laughs> Madagascar. You, you're, you look at it, and you're, if you're between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, you're in a tropical zone, Biak, Indonesia, whatever. You're, um, you're going to see that the, um, there's not such a drastic drop, generally, um, Night to day, this daytime high, nighttime low uh, flux isn't quite as high as what we we try to do. And I think you're you're probably looking at a dietary cycle in the wild more so than anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, you see it like skinks are born. Um, that's a, a green tree or a carpet's first meal. That you know, they're they're it's timed perfectly. Eggs are hatching for those those carpets or those green trees when skinks are being born, when geckos are hatching out, and there's there's a plethora of food for those babies and it's everything's kind of hand in glove it all fits it all works so i'm just kind of trying to mimic i was trying to circumvent respiratory infections and it worked and how long are you feeding those smaller meals when you do start amping up food like after i've got the results that i want um then i'm going to try to start stepping it back up to larger meals and less frequent feedings you know, it's it's all gotcha. so it's a cycle. You know, yeah, I, I'm yeah. only doing that during the the times that I'm trying to get them into the breeding mode. With green trees, they stop um, feeding at a certain point, and then when they when they she's done laying eggs, and I got eggs in a cooker, and I got her, she's had a shed, and she's back on feeding again. Um, you know, then then I'm uh, I'm. I'm like, okay, well, well, let's start graduating your prey size up. And it doesn't take a, a couple feedings. You go from three days to once a week, from once a week to once every two weeks, you know, this kind of thing. A few feeding trials, and pretty soon you're back on your standard size prey items, whether you want to use mice or rats. Um, you know, there's always this big controversy about mice versus rats, and, and I think either will work. Um, it just depends on what, you know, what your goal is. Like, I, I'll use African software rats, too, especially if I have a girl that's, that's thin or a male that's thin and I'm trying to put some weight on his, on his bones. That's like feeding somebody cheesecake. Yeah, like I've heard those are rat is a rich meal. Yeah. You know, and, and they'll put weight back on the bones really quickly. And that's so, something Jake wanted to touch you know, on, too, was the, the, the conversation about feeding birds or anything avian-related that you would yeah, talk about a couple you know, of weeks I am, ago. Yeah, I am not a fan of... I'll tell you the, the the best way I think to use birds. I've I've talked about maybe I don't know if I've done it on the radio shows, but but a skink cubes or or gecko cubes or a null cubes. So, um, you know, uh, 
what I'll do is I'll get, depending on the species that you're dealing with, so let's say that you're, you're talking about um, a Dominican red mountain bows, right? Mm-hmm. I love Dominican red mountain bows. We have some really nice ones. But you do have if you're nice talking ones. about um, Dominican red mountain bows, that, that's something you want to start on in knolls because it's more akin to what they're, uh, that's what they're going to eat in the wild. Um, often, and then if you're talking about, um, oh, let's say kendoya, you're going to probably want to start with geckos or skinks, and same with with Indonesia, geckos or skinks are probably going to be the fair. So I'll take uh, whatever prospective prey species like that. I get the cheap one. I freeze it solid as a rock. Now here's a cool little trick: if you put it in a cooler and you use dry ice, you can kill even cystoda, that's tapeworms. Um, in that prey item, any kind of parasite that's in that, if you if you keep it at that negative uh, four for 15 hours, you have knocked out those parasites um, that are that could affect your reptile. Because reptiles are, it's easy to contract diseases feeding reptiles to reptiles. Now I'll take chicken broth, the real deal, real chicken broth, not like something in a can that you know was whipped up with bullion or something, but real mm-hmm. chicken broth. Um, and and I'll I'll get it boiling on the stove, and I take my frozen uh, skink or gecko or whatever uh, no out of the freezer and I drop it into my wife's favorite blender like a magic the magic Nutribullet or whatever it is, <laughs> and then I, I pour the boiling hot broth. There's my bird. I pour the boiling. You're never going to get a parasite from boiling hot broth. I pour that over top of the gecko and I turn it on high and make a nice slimy slurry out of this thing. I pour it into my wife's favorite. Um, ice cube tray and put it in the freezer and then at the next uh, get together dinner party that she has these ice cubes will get the, the divorce paper signed right away um, <laughs> but no I, I put them in a Ziploc bag and they, they last a very long time and I can't take credit for this trick um, Tracy Barker introduced me to that idea it's a, and it really works you can take one of these cubes out they last forever you've only sacrificed one poor gecko or skink or whatever uh, don't use your rachidactylus. They're more expensive. So <laughs> house gecko, right? Um, anyway, and you take this ink cube or gecko cube, a null cube, and you rub it on the head of the prey item, the, the pinky or whatever, and then put that. It'll let it fall a little bit and, and rub that slimy stuff all over the... And then put that on your forceps and put it up to your snake's face, and you'd be surprised how many of them will say, this is what I want. And pretty soon, like, um, I did... I did uh, the Kondoya bibrania stralis for a while, and and um, pretty soon you just they're so like, oh he's feeding me again, and you just put the pinky up there, and you don't have to have any scent on them whatsoever, and they just take it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I did uh, venomous stuff for years, venomous species for years, and uh, getting some of these, uh, I did uh, both Reopsis bilineata, uh, and um, babies can sometimes be a pill to get started, and you can do the same thing with frogs, but. Again, you're not you're not passing on the potential for parasites, and I'm not a fan of using bird anything because, especially with uh, with corallus, your your uh, so emeralds. Um, I don't see as many problems for Amazons, but I still don't do it because there's just you know um, avian chlamydia is uh, like the the bane of. Um, for, for Corallus, specifically Corallus caninus or Betis eye, you know, it's this is really uh, bird avian prey. It's something I, I just totally avoid. 
I don't want to buy a snake from somebody who's feeding it birds. I don't care if that's the exporter or if that's a breeder or a keeper, whatever. If they're feeding the birds, I'm not interested. I've I've seen the. Um, it, it is a long, drawn out disease. It's very difficult to treat. Your, you know, it, it can, treatment can go for a year, and you still may not not win the battle with avian chlamydia. What do they even um, use to treat that? You know, I use usually it's like uh, vibromycin or doxycycline, um, or uh, oxytetracycline is an injectable. Oh. Uh, I tend to not want to use the injectable because I think that goes back to the stress thing. When I'm when I'm giving supplements to my snakes, I use I use supplements. Um, I, I make my own supplements. I actually even sell the supplement, but but um, I tell people exactly what's in it. They can make it themselves, but most people are just like, can you just make it for me? I, I might that. know somebody on this radio show that had. I on I show. fully endorse it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I use I use supplements again. Um, it's like when I have snakes that are uh, import wild-caught snakes and we're acclimating those animals. Um, when we're treating them for, for internal parasites, um, I'm, I'm, I'm slipping them a mickey. I put the meds into the, the rodent that they're feeding on, this thawed rodent that they're feeding on, injected into the rodent. Of course, it's a thawed rodent. You don't want to inject those meds into a live rodent. That would be horrendous. But, but inject it into this thawed rodent and then offer it to the snake. And the snake never even knows that it was, you know, it's like Bill Cosby gets a date, you know. <laughs> <laughs> snake, oh, snake gets a meal, <laughs> you know. Oh, um, and, and so you're able to treat them that way without stressing them. And, and that's the whole key. When you're acclimating something, you want to stress uh, as far down the totem pole as possible. You really just don't want to, um, because stress is, is what you're trying to overcome. That is, acclimation is the opposite of, of stress. You know, once you get this animal's own immune system to take off, I don't care um, what pharmaceutical company we're talking about, about Bayer, the evil Bayer who just bought Monsanto, you know, um, these these pharmaceuticals cannot cannot replace a millennia um, of the inheritance to be able to have an immune system that that allows it to combat the things that that snake would be exposed to. Right. And that kind of segues into another thing. I'm not a big bioactive uh, cage fan at all. I, I think of that like we gave... Uh, you know, smallpox-laden blankets to tribes when the, the first uh, uh, settlers came over um, by quote-unquote accident. I wiped out a whole tribes, um, not because they're, somehow their immune system is wimpy, because it's very foreign to them. They, they've, they have no immune system. They have no, no antibodies for this. You know, if you're putting soil in the cage, of, uh, you, gotta, you get your first Biox green J on because it was cheap. And then you've made this, this the wonderful uh, cage that's set up in the bioactive muck. and um, a three-inch it's, grapevine. It's, yeah, it's moist. <laughs> it's got coca bedding. It's humid. It's, and it's a great place to breed bacteria. Um, viruses are going to have a, a, a heyday. Fungus is going to have a heyday. It, you're subjecting this animal to potentials that aren't necessary. That is not for the snake. That's for you. That's because you look at it and you go, oh, it looks so nice and jungly. When in reality, that snake, if it came out of the wild and you put it into this concoction that you've contrived, and, and it, it's going to say, dude, I lived in the jungle and this ain't it. Sorry, your exoterra don't cut the mustard. 
right? Mm-hmm. And if you took a captive-bred snake that's lived its whole life in a plastic tub and you put it in, it's like, he's like, geez, what are you trying to do, kill me? You know, <laughs> I have to contend with all this stuff now. People are like, oh, no, but, you know, I sterilized this before I put it in. And then I introduced springtails and thrips and isopods. And You know the thing about animals? You know what's living on animals? Animals. You know what's living on those animals? Animals. You know, we got stuff inside of us. If it, and your job really is not when we talk about treating an animal um, for uh, say oh well I'm going to get some flagellum I'm going to treat it for the bacteria in its gut okay um, we oversimplify everything but there's bad bacteria and good bacteria black and white and it ain't yeah. like that it's uh, when you look at at any kind of ecosystem in the macroscopic world and like elephants down to whatever shrews. Um, there are there are symbiotic relationships where certain things that are competitors in one way benefit each other in another way. Um, it, it's all interconnected and, and woven together, and the idea is balance. And so um, that's why, like, after you treat with something like metronidazole is a very great drug, um, but it doesn't pick and choose who the bad guys are and who the beneficial guys are. It runs down there like a cage fighter, punching the lights out of every kind yeah. of bacteria it sees as it's moving down the gut. And, and I used to think uh, probiotics was some kind of hippie fad, but there's really something to it. I had a surgery one time, um, and after that, they gave me some hefty antibiotics. It wiped out the, the, the bacteria that were beneficial to me as well as the bad bacteria. It did its job. It just knocked it all out. And afterward, well, let's just say that I, I visited the Oval Office more often than normal, right? <laughs> Your digestive system ain't what it was. Yeah. And you got the Hershey squirts. And so the, I went back to the doctor, and they're like, you, you need to recalibrate, <laughs> rebalance the system, take these pills. It's going to um, add, add some beneficial bacteria that we know is, is not going to be harmful to you. But what's harmful is when one population or another within that whatever, intestinal microscopic um, ecosystem gets out of hand. Some some guy that was, you know, he's not bad for him, he's not hurting him. If it gets out of whack, if it's out of balance, now you have problems. I mean, obviously we know there are bacteria that are very, very um, dangerous. Um, just put some romaine lettuce on your burger and you'll figure it out. <laughs> um, right? But But the point is you want to balance the system and – you, you're not, your job is not to wipe out everything. It's checks and, and balances. And at the end of treating with metronidazole, we, we replace it with probiotics. The next five feedings, it's getting probiotics to, to kind of – and when you're using probiotics, you want multiple organisms in there. So that, um, I always, I always liking, liken uh, this to, you know, when you go to your favorite uh, lake – and you're going to go do some fishing, and there's some jerk down there, and he's taking a leak in the lake, and he's throwing his empty beer cans <laughs> in the lake. Those are the bad bacteria. Let's knock them out, and then we'll sort of replace them with our, our good fishing buddies that care about how that lake is. You want a good, healthy lake, and that's what the intestinal system is. You're, you're trying to recalibrate it and repopulate it with, with the you know, guys that we know aren't throwing beer cans in the lake. And so... If you wipe everything out, if I if I took all of the bacteria out of your system right now, you have parasites in your system. I do too. What? Um, right now, you and I have bacteria in our system. Um, and if you take everything out, you're dead. It, you, you need to have, you know, it's it's life. It is what it is. So, so anyway, you're just trying to keep things in a balanced level, and that has that's what acclimation is all about. Allowing the animals 
own system to come back online because it's the best um, pharmacy that the animal will ever have. Right. And and that's another reason why I don't want to introduce foreign <clears throat> matter to the cage. If you got this, your 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 hillbilly was with, with his first green tray python and his beak in that cage. If if he if the dirt he put in there uh, ain't from beak, don't bother. You know, if it ain't, no. it's it's got other stuff in it. You know. So, what would be your recommended substrate? Do you use paper or uh, what? What, I, what would I you use, use? I use paper. You, now you can grow you can grow fungus on paper too. You mold yeah, and right. bacteria on paper too. But it's very easy to see. Uh, what I notice with people who have particulate cu- uh, substrates is that it costs them money, and they uh, they're hesitant to to chuck it all out. It's a pain in the butt to have to tear a. a um, a jungly cage down and, and tear everything out, so they spot clean. I assure you that when a snake poops, you, we've all seen it, it, it ain't all in one little spot. It's uh, nope. smeared here and there. Cave paintings. You're not getting it all by spot cleaning, and so that means that now you got something in the soil that you didn't have, the cocoa bedding, whatever, that you didn't have before. So for me, I use, I use paper towel for my neonates. Um, for my larger snakes, I use these uh, uh, paper pads. And they're my the paper pads are my favorite price. Um, I, they're called apple pads, is what I, I call them. Um, they're three dollars and fifty free cents. They're, they're they're free. I go to my grocery store and I say, "This is what I'm looking for. You see these pads like this? Um, you guys throw them away all the time at the produce department. These are pads that go over the top of like apples or peaches or pears, whatever. And so the truck's driving down the road and the apple bounces up and instead of hitting on the the tray above it and causing a bruise it has this nice soft pad cool thing is the pad is actually made of recycled newspaper mulch that is um it's it's put in sandwich between two pieces of paper and sealed around the edges like an envelope so now you have this pad instead of having if you've ever used carefresh bedding it's terrible it's dusty and i don't like that for for animals at all but this is sort of like that sealed between two pieces of paper, so you, you've circumvented the respiratory issues of the dusty dustiness. It's still very absorbent. When the snake uh, defecates on it, I just roll it up and throw it. It's it's, it's uh, very easy to see what's going on in the cage when it needs to be changed. You're like, up, oh, I see a, a little somebody left a little muffin there. I roll that baby up and chuck it. Slap another one in there. If I need to sterilize the inside of the cage or sanitize the inside of a cage, I can do that. And I and I put the pad back in there and. We're off to the races again. It's, it's simplicity is always going to serve you. What's Patience your, pays, simplicity serves. What's your and, disinfectant of choice? That's a great question. So um, I have changed things considerably. Um, I have a dedicated dishwasher for, uh, like, water bowls, deli, deli trays, deli tubs, st- stuff that I'm going to, going to wash. Mm-hmm. Um, and I put it on this sanitizing cycle with the extra heat and it's a pretty fancy little dishwasher but it works great but i put chlorhexidine in the dishwasher when i'm sanitizing those things and i you know if you if you get a bottle like a gallon of chlorhexidine it may cost you a little money to get a gallon of chlorhexidine but man it's like whatever it is like two tablespoons or teaspoons equal sanitize you mix it with a whole gallon of water so, man, I, I'm not too shy with that. I'm just going to and put the, the regular dish soap in there, 
Um, and I, I wash those dishes that way. Inside of my cages, I like to use something that's super cheap. Everybody's going to have access to it, and, um, and, it, and it really works. So you can do something that I, that I, I like to call it pH shocking. Um, and this is where we take uh, something that's on the alkali end of the, the spectrum, like um, an antibacterial uh, dish soap, mm-hmm. um, the liquid stuff, uh, so, soaps on that alkali end of it. You take the hottest water you can possibly get, and you just give it a good scrub with hot soap and water. Now you're on the alkali end of things. You rinse it out. Then you take acetic uh, acid, which is vinegar. You can go down and get a, a big gallon of vinegar for $2.50 or whatever, right? And um, uh, I like to take my vinegar and I mix it with isopropyl, the 91% isopropyl alcohol. Um, alcohol, straight straight alcohol, it's more effective when I'm doing, if you're doing extracts or something with with grain alcohol, it's more effective if it's, if it's not pure alcohol. If it's got a little bit of um, if it's watered down a little bit, it's actually more effective. Mm-hmm. It allows it to spread a little better or something. It's just better. So um, mixing it with with vinegar is not going to cause your – it's not going to blow up in your kitchen or some crazy – it's not a bad science experiment. The same is not true for bleach. Right. Bleach, Clorox, you don't mix with anything. Yeah. Right? But but you can take vinegar and um, isopropyl alcohol, and I so I fill a, a 32-ounce spray bottle with uh, – um, 25 ounces of of uh, vinegar. Then I fill it all the way up till it's almost uh, almost full with the so whatever um, five five more ounces of isopropyl alcohol. And then the little the little two ounces that are left. Then I'm I'm taking a um, I like to take uh, citric acid, lemon juice or lime juice, just because it's when you spray this stuff. It has a pretty pugnacious smell to it, so I so I'll, I I spray or I squirt a little bit of uh, um, real lemon or lime juice in there. It also gives it a different color, so that I don't mix it up with a water bottle, mm-hmm. um, a spray bottle, something like that. So it gives it a little color. Um, and so now you're taking at the other end of the spectrum. Now we're on the acidic um, end of this spectrum. And what's interesting about pH is if you take any organism and you subject it to um, uh, you, Two points over from where it should be, left or right on the pH scale, you've killed it. Yeah, I mean, you, you, it, it's not something that you um, are gonna uh, grow resistant to. It's like a chemical burn; you are done. It's like, a, you know, you don't get resistant to to fire. You know, so it's it really works. You've taken it on the the base end and scrubbed it with hot water on the base end. Then you spray the whole inside of the cage down. Um, and I'll tell you, for perch holders, I love the stuff that David Brahms produces. His S3D enclosure design yeah, this yeah. business. He's he's one of us. He's a keeper, and he's developed products that serve the community. And I and he's really innovative. He's coming out with cool ideas for mm-hmm. for these little cage fronts and and perches and perch holders, water bowl holders, a, a plethora of really cool things. He's and his his brain never stops working. This guy's like, I, I, um. We work together on the the perch holders, but he's he's uh, um, that man's got many cards up his sleeve. He's talking to a lot of people. Some people bring ideas to him, and he implements them and puts puts it in. You know, you have an idea, and he puts it into practice and makes it a, an, a tangible asset that you can use in your in your collection. Yeah, we've so talked to him before about coming on. Magnetic perch holders. I love the magnetic perch holders because 
a sandwich joint is not your friend. Like a sandwich joint is where two pieces of plastic or whatever material are just kind of pressed up against one another. So I, initially I was using these bolt, uh, the bolt-on perches. Yep. They work very well, but with a sandwich joint like that, it causes you to, if you're going to really break the cage down, fluid gets trapped between those two surfaces. And w- when that happens, um, that means fluids like urates, uh, where bacteria and viruses may lurk. I, if I'm putting an animal in it, clean needs to be sanitized, needs to be sterilized. There's a difference between sanitized and sterilized. Sanitized means I scrubbed all the, the dirt matter on it. It looks clean, but it, it, it might still have bacteria in there it might mm-hmm. still have something that you just don't see um but sterilized means it's got it, you've killed anything that could possibly be in there and and so if you don't have to get your screw gun out to undo bolts and deal with washers and deal with nuts and deal with screws now all i do is i just i use a, a washer on the outside um and then he, there's a magnet inside of this thing and it just holds it all together um it has two little um i say teats um, two little protrusions coming off of it goes through the, the wall of the cage, and the magnets ho- just holding everything sandwiched together. When I need to, to strip it down to clean it, I pull the washer off, and, and it just falls apart. Yeah. It's the coolest thing for, like, a show. You could have a stack of tubs um, with all of the hardware in the top tub, and then you could put all, set up all of your tubs with your animals in and pull them out of there, the little shipping containers, and put them into their respective tubs in it takes you seconds to put a cage together. Mm-hmm. It's really, really... Yeah, I've seen them. Um, They're really, really nice. They work. They look good, too. You know, I, I use those, and I love them. But it allows me to, to sanitize that. Now, let's say you have an animal that dies of questionable circumstances in the cage. Um, you're, you're away on a ski trip for the weekend or whatever, and you come back, and this animal is... It's beyond, let's go get a necropsy. It's, it's sour, right? Um, and... We've all been in a position, if you have a fair collection where you lost an animal and you came back to find it, and you're like, whoa, this one's two days gone. i got to get it out of here, right? So how do you clean a cage like that? For me, if I'm not sure exactly what it died of, um, if it's not something I've got a necropsy on or whatever, if, it's, if an animal died in a cage, I, I want to use another um, another cleanser on top of cleaning it with the things we've already talked about, and that's parasitic acid. And I'll give my buddy uh, Ian Bissell of S&J Reptiles uh, full credit for introducing me to, uh, to the world of parasitic acid. It's an interesting, um, simple thing, but it's very caustic, so you have to be super careful with it. Um, they use it, the, the FDA requires uh, certain companies to use it if they're, if, they're, uh, if they're making whiskey, if they're making cheese, if they're culturing something. Most places that are dealing with food that you and I, they're, they're major food uh, distributors that are, or producers, um, they're required to clean uh, all of the, the surfaces with something like parasitic acid. And so parasitic acid is basically a combination of hydrogen peroxide and vinegar. Now, here's the thing. It's very caustic. If you breathe this stuff in, it can, it can burn the inside of your, your lungs. It, if, you, if it gets uh, water, the vapor droplets of it in, in the air get in your eye, it can burn your cornea, it can burn your skin if you get it on your skin. It is very caustic It's stuff. like mustard gas. But, yeah, it's like mustard gas, right. So here's a simple way to do it. It's also a great bathroom cleaner. So um, 
here's a simple way to do it. You get two bottles. You can go to Wally World and you can get a, bo- a spray bottle of um, hydrogen peroxide, and it comes in a nice dark bottle because uh, when hydrogen peroxide is exposed to sunlight, it begins to break down very rapidly, right? So it's in the dark bottle. It's the, the, the real deal, the whatever it is, I think 3% hydrogen peroxide or 2% or whatever it is. I think it's 3%. Anyway, and then you get another spray bottle that has uh, vinegar in it, which is acetic acid. And to, to, so what I would do is I would go put this uh, cage into the tub, and I would spray it down with one um, We'll start with the vinegar. We spray it down with vinegar, walk out of the bathroom, give it a while until any of the vapor that's in the air has had a chance to settle, then go back in with the hydrogen peroxide and spray all the surfaces inside and out. Something people forget to think about is that if there's handles, they, they handled the cage and oftentimes they handled the handle. They handled the lid. Um, anything that you've touched once you've touched this cage you're you're spreading things around. So you got to be, um, you know, thoughtful, cognizant of get a, get every surface and get it really clean. Make sure your hands are really clean as well, but don't don't clean them with parasitic acid. Um, <laughs> but you know, gloves are a, a great thing. Um, but anyway, you can spray spray the second uh, um, ingredient on it, uh, and then walk out and leave it sit for like two hours. And the cool thing is, it breaks down to oxygen, water, and vinegar. And you can wash it right down the drain, and it's at that point it's no longer you know nuclear caustic. It, it just you give it some time to do its work. It kills anything on that surface, and then you just rinse it out with water, and you're good to go. Hmm. It's really cool. It's really cool. It's a super. It's the like the nuclear um, <laughs> cleanser, but but it really works. And you know, uh, um, wiping a surface with alcohol is also very effective. Labs all over the world. Every day are using alcohol, you know, to when they give you an injection, they take that little cotton swab and they wipe your arm with something that's got, a, you know, alcohol. They pull the little, tear the little thing open, wipe it on your arm, and, and um, you know, then they take your blood or give you medication, whatever they're doing, you know. And um, so alcohol is a very, you know, useful thing to have in your, in your, uh, in your herp room, too. Yeah. Gloves are cheap. Man, I, I had these gloves. Um, I got them from, a, like, a ranching store. Uh, they're awesome. They're <laughs> they're for uh, you know um, helping a, a a cow that has a calf that you're trying to pull a calf. Um, I've the had my arms to, like, all your shoulder? my shoulders yeah. in places we don't need to talk about. <laughs> yeah, they go up your shoulder, and a, a whole whole thing of them is like whatever, fifteen bucks or whatever. You got like a hundred, two hundred bags or I don't know. They're they're not expensive, and um, you know these these are just little things that that. Uh, you know they're not that expensive, um, and when you need to utilize them, you need them. You know, uh, it's a good idea to have to have syringes on hand. But I will tell you that I think a lot of people want to practice this kind of I say um, backyard, basement, or bathroom veterinary care. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to give you legal advice because I'm not a lawyer, and um, you know I'm not going to I'm not going to tell a mechanic. Uh, how to do his job if I don't know anything about being a mechanic. And these guys went to school for this, and they are they are a serious asset. Make a good relationship with a good veterinarian that knows their stuff, um, that's easy to work with. Form a, a good relationship with them and pay them. And, you know, it's really nice if you you have an animal that you know has been treated, 
um, doesn't hurt to periodically bring them back in and say, hey, um, let's do a fecal float on this animal and see if there's how things are going. Are we still still looking good here? It never hurts to do that. So um, I'm, I'm a big proponent of people see, seeking real veterinary care, establishing that relationship. It will It's as good as gold. It, you, you spent the money on the snake. You right. spent the money on the cage and the feed. Why wouldn't you follow through with the rest of it? You know, yeah, and we've talked about that with imports before too. Is like you get that that sort of that infatuation with the the lower prices, but then you come to realize, you know, a lot of us have bought imports and then realize, right? By the mm-hmm. end of me taking it to the vet and getting all this stuff done and buying caging, like I just spent the same amount that I would have spent on a you know a captive bred animal, anyways. So it, yeah, it, you got it. Yeah, you got it. You know, quarantine. Uh, is something that that is so often kind of downplayed or overlooked. Um, I've been I've even been made fun of of it before for for co- my quarantine practices. People like to roll their eyes like, okay, whatever, you know. Um, and look, if if my only goal is to extract the money from your wallet and, and transfer it into my wallet, maybe their method in the short term is. Uh, beneficial to them and is probably it's certainly a faster way to earn some bucks right but I think that's very short-term thinking sooner or later uh, you'd like to think that the public wakes up and realizes this guy is or gal whoever the the person may be is is um, is not the kind of person's business that I want to support and anytime if you get suckered into that let's buy it buy this cheap animal I will tell you that nine times out of ten, whoever this person is, that's that's um, they'll promise you the sun and the moon and the stars, but if you have to tell tales to make sales, you're in the wrong business. You know, it's, it, the the worst part is like a, the guys that have been in it for a while, they kind of know like who's worthwhile to deal with and who's maybe a little bit slim shady, right? right. And so they're they they can hear the BS and smell it, right? Yep. They they know what's be- being laid down. However, it's the new guys that are coming in. You want them to have a good experience and if if they deal with somebody based doing a purchase based on price alone, they're going to end up getting burned sooner or later. They're going to get something that they they got because it was a good deal. Mm-hmm. And just like was that Jacob you you were saying that you know by the end, you realize I've got as much tied up in in trying to resurrect this animal that I got for so cheap as I would have had if I just bought an animal that was from a, a reputable source. Whether it's wild caught or not, you know, there are people that sell good wild caught animals, but if they're saying I I have treated it with these medications, I've had it for this long, is there worth is there word you know worth its weight? Yeah. And if it is, you'll you'll it'll show in the animal. They're well, all going to die. Every animal you get's going to die. I mean, but especially our with, job is to extend that expiration date. With condors and emeralds, though, it's like people just need to come to terms that they're just not cheap snakes. Yeah, no, that's they're like, not. They're, <laughs> they're not, not cheap not. snakes. Like they're if you want a cheap snake, yeah. you have plenty of other options. No like, self-respecting these are... breeder, <clears throat> no self-respecting breeder puts the time and effort in that's necessary to create an emerald tree boa or a green tree python or whatever the species is. They don't put the time and effort into making that, um, and then. Um, you know, sell it cheap. Mm-hmm. It's got a it's got a different value other than just dollars and cents. They've got their their sweat equity into it, and um, 
I, you know, I'm I'm not above paying somebody what their animal's worth. I, I look at it and I say, what's what's the price that you'll accept on this animal? They tell me, and it's either in my ballpark or it's not. If it's not, I'm not even a haggler. I go, okay, well, yeah. thank you very much for the. Oh, wait, wait, can it, it, do you want to make me a counter? Well, that's different, but I'm not here to haggle someone's socks off. Mm-hmm. It's just something but, we see you know, all too often. Everybody wants a good deal, but a good deal doesn't just mean a low price. Yeah. Because so, it, it's, yeah. it's all too common. We all, I, yeah, we all see it in the Condro groups. You know, I just got this. I got it for two seventy five at you know one of you know Petco whatever. It's right. like yeah, cool. It's like but you have it in a aquarium with grapevine and plastic plants mm-hmm. and a mister and <laughs> hum, a fogger. <laughs> screen, it's like top. you're like making snake jerky. Yeah, it's like you could have saved yourself all this trouble if you just. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really it love. Is. Isn't it cool to see how how far our um, the hobby has come? You know, now you've got such connectivity with other keepers. You can reach right out, and you can you can get this guy's opinion and this guy's opinion and that guy's opinion, and they're all very successful people that you have respect for. And you can you can um, you just make these connections with people, and you can get really good information and apply it and. The research is half of the fun. I can't understand impulse purchases where somebody buys something, they don't put the time in ahead of time to research what they're getting into, and and then they have disastrous results. To me, the research of learning about the next potential thing is just as much fun as getting it, and it sure paves the road toward having a better experience for both the animal and the keeper. Mm-hmm. And I, I always put it in that order, too. People laugh, at it, but I put it in that order. Um, you know, always, uh, the, the old thing where somebody, uh, you know, the customer's always right. I had this one one time where this guy's like, hey, uh, you know, I can only receive the, the shipment on Friday, um, so I want you to ship Thursday for Friday. I'm say, I say, sorry, I sh- only ship Monday through Wednesdays. I said earlier, well, yeah, but I need you to ship it on Thursday for Friday. I say, well, but I ship Monday through Wednesday. The customer's <laughs> always right. You know, the cu- you know, uh that might be true if you work it out back. Yeah, no, that doesn't. That's not how. That's not how it works in this section of uh, of business. Well, I uh, want lettuce on my burger. You get romaine, sir. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I said. I, I, he says the customer. The customer always comes first. The customer's always right. I said, you know what? I think that's BS. I don't believe in that. I don't subscribe to that. And he's like, what? And I said, listen, if you deal with a guy. And you buy an animal from him because you want the best animal that you can possibly get. So you go to that guy to try to get the best animal you can get. He has, I assure you, he is putting the animal first. And you are going to be a very happy second. And so is the animal because that's what you came for. These aren't nuts and bolts. They aren't car parts, motorcycle parts, computer accessories. This is a live animal. And so the, the live animal comes first if you want to receive what you're expecting. Well, those are the and same like, people, too, that when their package gets lost over the weekend at FedEx, they're like, well, what the hell, yeah, man? Yeah. yeah. This is it. all your I fault. Yeah. yeah, well. Hey, <laughs> asshole, you sent my package on a Thursday. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, that's what he said. He's like, what does that have to do with me? One of my, I said, if I ship Thursday for Friday and there's a hiccup, man, I don't fly the planes and I don't drive the truck. And I, and I, do, I do a full live arrival guarantee, no ifs, ands, or buts and a seven-day health guarantee. But are you really willing to jeopardize the, the health of this animal 
by having it shipped Thursday for Friday, and there's a little hiccup, and then it stuck over the weekend. I said, personally, I think you're going to have a better time caring for this animal than somebody at FedEx over the weekend or it's sitting on the back of a truck somewhere. And he's Either like, freezing oh, or frying. You're right. When you spell it out to them like that, they're like, you know, nobody wants uh, um, the, the reptile to, res- to be shipped the fastest and arrive dead. Oh, I got it so quickly, dead and quick. That was awesome. No, yeah. nobody's <laughs> even more pissed phase, off than you know? I was before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And sure. this is a time of year to, like, shipping. Um, I got a hand it. I use, I've used Ship Your Reptiles for, since the, the inception. I've known those guys since before they, they owned Ship Your Reptiles. Um, That's they, who I they use. They took an idea and ran with it and implemented it better than it. I've seen it done anywhere. Um, there's a lot of uh, um, other companies that compete. But um, I haven't found anything that I, made me want to step away from them. They do a really good job, and they have no ifs, ands, or buts about saying, hey, um, we're going to shut off sh- um, insurance starting this day. We're going to shut off shipping completely mm-hmm. until this day. And it's, they're always like, put your animals first. And I just love that. You know, yeah. I think that's, uh, the customers understand it. If they're really animal people, they understand it. it uh, makes- I've, I've been really happy with them because I've been using them since, you know, when I started doing all the Crested and stuff. They're the only person I, you know, the only company I used, and I was really happy with the customer they step service. Up, i got to tell you, man, they step up on their insurance. We had, they do. We had a package that got, got uh, um, delayed in, in the most horrendous uh, manner. Uh, Memphis, uh, Memphis. Anyway... It got this package, uh, it was delayed, and I think it was lost for a little while, and it, so it arrived, you know, a, a day late and a dollar short kind of a situation. And I got this animal, and, you know, it was insured for a high dollar amount. I was sweating bullets, and I opened it up, and the thing's lifeless. It was lifeless for like four hours. You know, when you, when you receive an animal in cold conditions, um, you have a much better chance of bringing that ba- animal back than if you receive an animal under hot conditions. Yeah. So you have to take both into consideration. But heat is, like, super deadly. But with this animal, I mean, um, when you get an animal in, a, in cold conditions like that, you never want to heat shock this animal. Um, you've all, like, when you're a kid, you're out having a snowball fight, and, and you say, oh, I don't need my gloves, Mom, I'm good, and you're out <laughs> there, and your, your hands turn rosy pink, and you're like, oh, they're so cold, and you run in them, and you... If you put them in hot water, oh yeah, my hurts. gosh! Can you imagine doing that to a snake? Mm-hmm. It would shock it and kill it. Mm-hmm. And so, when you get an animal in after it's been subjected to suboptimal temperatures, very very cold temperatures, then you sit it in a, in a room temperature in the box, leave it alone, completely leave it alone. Um, if it's going to come back to in in the room temperature, it will let it let it come back slowly. This animal didn't move for four hours. I had already taken pictures of me holding the animal up. It was just like lifeless, totally dead, um, I, laying on its back. I, I sent them the pictures. I, I did everything that they required me to do. Um, they've got to, you know, uh, dot their I's and cross their T's too, and they want you to as well. And, you know, they have specific guidelines. Yeah. If you look at those guidelines, like these guys see – exactly when claims are made mm-hmm. so they know what what safe shipping conditions are and what they aren't based on the values that they get back from when claims are filed it, it, that then the light bulb comes on a lot of people's head and they go oh well i understand why they want it specifically done their way just adhere to that it's very very simple stuff and um 
they're really great to work with. I got to say, man, they were professional through the whole thing. They yeah. were willing to step up to the plate for me, and I, I, I was comfortable knowing that I was covered. And I was even more excited when I, I went in to check this animal, and I, I, I kind of pulled the, the head back, and um, it, it went back into the same position, um, but almost like it was Turger was starting. It was like I thought and the rigor mortis um, was kicking too in early for rigor mortis to set yeah. in. Was that muscular activity? And then I saw the end of the tail curl, and I was like, oh, there's life. You know, there's there's a potential. Now, now it could have been anoxic for, um, without oxygen for long enough yeah. uh, could do some, some brain damage. Um, it, it could cause major problems. The animal could later wind up with a respiratory infection. These guys really stepped up, and um, the animal came back, and it's absolutely healthy and fine, and I'm delighted to have it in my collection. And I'm telling you, I'm... Fingers crossed, next year this girl is going to knock it out of the park for me. I'll tell you, it's a, it's um, it this was it came from a customer who had already purchased this animal, so I got it, quote unquote, second hand. Um, it's a, it's an Eddie Appel animal. Ooh. Um, Eddie Appel makes some absolutely yeah, amazing animals, and I happen to have a male here already that I own with my friend Michael Christopher, and now I have a female that I own outright, and um. It's you know I'm going to be able to do some really fun things with those uh, those bloodlines. In fact, that that male Browning 50, uh, when this when our snows hit, um, I went out and I saw him locked up with a, a female. I'd had this discussion with Eddie Appel about about this animal that I was getting, and I told told him the whole scenario, and I, so it turned out really well. And um, we got to talking, and he'd done another pairing using the same sire. That, that created Browning 50. Browning 50 was originally named um, Ruby Tuesday, and Eddie had thought it was a female, and he, so he named it Ruby Tuesday, and then we got it, and it turned out it was a male. It was very common in the, the green tree world when you're not sexing things at a certain age. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, it, it, it turned out it was a male, and with Eddie's blessing, thank you, Mr. Appel, um, uh, we changed the name to something as that sounded a little, a little, a little more, more masculine. Yes. Yeah, more masculine. So, so anyway, um, uh, he did this pairing with this girl Lucille, this female that he has, Lucille, and he he took Dupree as his male and he bred it to Lucille. And if you if you've not seen Dupree, uh, Dupree or Lucille or any of these, you should check them out on his page. But he he made this one called Caldera. Everything in that clutch uh, was amazing, but he made this one that he calls caldera and it is like off the hook and the female lucille that he used is strikingly similar genetically speaking she's an os yellow uh high yellow animal um os meaning uh, ophiological services uh eugene Bissett. so bloodlines that go way back like Mm -hmm. the 70s but but um i happen to have a female here that has very very similar genetics and so I have put the two together, and that's who he was copulating with the other night. And you know, you can't count your chickens or your snakes, but it's a start. I got my fingers crossed. Yeah, It'd be, it would be kind of um, trying to mimic. Uh, it would be great to make something, anything even closely similar. But he's got really potent uh, bloodlines in that Dupree male. There's there's uh, um, Jason Stevens and and uh, um, uh, Ryan Burke. The the um, uh, that RFAC female, the uh, CRC RFAC, that blue RFAC female. There's that bloodline in there. There's Mandango, one of the first calico type, I think it's like originating animal, uh, Mark Spatero. There's Kelmy, that's Buddy Bashemi's mm-hmm. um, 
blood and there's all it's a smorgasbord of stuff that boy is super potent and this girl is too and so it's fun to see uh sparks flying so now, yeah what's there's something that's been kind of a hot topic on some of the chondro groups lately has been uh like the maternal incubation versus the artificial have you done maternal much you know i have tried it earlier on in my um the the rainbow of my herpetological whatever um, so I, uh, I did Burmese. I started out, you know, one of the species that I really first did on a kind of a quote-unquote commercial basis uh, was Burmese pythons. This is like, this is dating me, but this is back <laughs> in the dark ages before cell phones and everything. Um, uh, and I had decent res- results with it, but I had already done artificial incubation and um, so I, I was kind of like stepping back and saying, oh, let's try And I used a visqueen to cover the female on the eggs. Um, it, it, you know, you're not sealing it up completely tight, but it helps to kind of help hold the humidity in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, maternal incubation, obviously, it's, it certainly works, um, and, it's, and it can work very well. Uh, but I felt like I had – I'm a control freak, and so I felt like I had more control um, doing it artificially – because I've had females that laid a clutch of eggs and left the clutch of eggs uh, for whatever reason and didn't go back to them. And so you need to, if you're going to do maternal incubation, my advice would be to have an incubator up, running, and ready to rock in case things don't go in the direction. She's not a super attentive mother, and for whatever reason she leaves it and doesn't come back, um, you've got the ability to get those eggs uh, right into an incubator and, and continue on from there. So I think that's um, really important. Another thing that I think should be pointed out with maternal incubation, I see this all the time in the ball python world. Somebody goes, I, I maternally incubated my ball pythons. And I'm like, no, you didn't. They're like, yes, I did. And then they got, I got pictures. Prove me I'm wrong. You know, and they send pictures of this female laying on top of the eggs and, and heads poking out of the egg. Ball pythons don't raise the temperature of a clutch through thermoregulatory twitching. It's not something that they do. Hmm. And so if you are hatching the ball pythons out with a female who is showing (coughs) brooding behavior, not incubation behavior, she'll wrap around the clutch, that's brooding behavior, but that's not incubation behavior. If If you're hatching them out, it means that you have the temperature and humidity parameters within that enclosure that are conducive to the eggs hatching anyway yeah she can't raise the temperature she can help hold retain some of the humidity some of the 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 fluid values in that in those eggs right but um but she can't raise the humidity you know in in the wild they they're they're laying in burrows underground um they oftentimes communally those girls know where to go to lay the eggs and they'll wrap around the eggs um you know to provide them protection from from predators or what have you that's brooding behavior, but when you're seeing thermoregulatory twitching, anybody that's, that's done carpets or uh, berms or green trees or whatever, when you see that, it's unmistakable. I've got a friend, um, a really good guy. He's, he is a whiz when it comes to things like chuckwallas and collared lizards and stuff like that. Uh, Ryan McKnight, he's a really great guy. And um, he's got a female that laid a clutch of eggs for me. And strangely, she's still continuing to do this kind of almost... Like it looks like a like a 
thermoregulatory twitching, but it's continued long after she's had sheds. She's, hmm. you know, he's cleaned the whole cage, and he's like, I don't know why she's still doing it. I'm like, I don't know either. And he, I said, you know, you ought to talk to Buddy Buscemi. He, he, he might throw some light on this. And he goes, and Buddy said, maybe she's got a retained egg, and it's still causing. And I thought, oh, that's a great idea. I didn't think of that. And um, you know, two heads are better than one. You know, you, um, it wasn't the case. She didn't have an ova, so we didn't still didn't find out a retained ova. We still didn't find out what caused it, but. But it's very interesting, um, nonetheless, when, you, uh, when you're confronted with issues. Just like when it goes back to this, you know, everybody's focused recently on the whole NIDO debacle. And um, I think when everybody's looking in one direction, that's when something else sneaks up and causes problems mm-hmm. um, that you weren't expecting. So I say, like, you know, I'm glad you got, you got dries out on NIDO, but guess what? There's a lot of other stuff out there. Ebola. Um, yeah, Ebola. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so you know, there's been um, quite a few different um, instances recently, also with cancers in in reptiles, and I think that's a really interesting um, topic. And so, while we're doing the show, I would like to say out to the public: if you have um, a necropsy that has been performed on an animal, a reptile. Um, snakes or otherwise but but specifically i'm looking mostly at snakes but but um if you have an animal that has died from a cancer and you have a pathology report from a a veterinarian who performed a necropsy on the animal um i would be interested in that and forwarding it to a friend of mine trey clark um who's who's uh, an incredible exotic vet one of the best in the nation, and um, he's, a, he's a vet that trains other vets. Anyway, um, I, I'm trying to compile data on animals that have died, reptiles, <laughs> specifically snakes, that have died from cancers, and we're trying to figure out if the, is there a, a causative factor to this. Could it be a genetic problem? Could it be exposure to some um, chemical or, or something in the environmental uh, a factor that's causing it? Or, you know, is it, is it some sort of a viral, virally instigated cancer? When you think about things like Tasmanian devils um, was one that he brought up. I brought up human papillomavirus. And, and we both were talking about um, Tony Nikolai that, that uh, found a virally instigated cancer um, in Emerald years ago. And it's great to see Tony back in action. Mm-hmm. He's, he's back in action, getting back into the, the, the emeralds and uh, basins and, and what have you. And a uh, really great guy. But, um, you know, so it'd be neat to have a little more documentation on these kind of things. And, and um, Jacob will get right on that. <laughs> the community I, I already did works it, so. together on this. <laughs> yeah, that was. I'm sorry? Uh, <laughs> he said I was going to get right on it, and uh, I said I already did, so. Good, good. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, the community, we pull together as a team, and we share information with one another. And um, <clears throat> it's silly when you, when you see one person trying to throw another person under the bus because they have a problem in their collection. Rather, if one person has a problem in the collection and it comes to light, think of all those who don't have a problem in their collection and don't bring it to light. Um, uh, we, we need to have open communication when we have issues. That's how things get solved. Right. You know, that's, that's, or, or at least we learn, even if it's not something you can easily solve, you can learn to circumvent um, issues. And so I think that's, that's good stuff. That's why we are a community. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Cool. Anyway. Well, we're at about an hour 45, just shy. Uh-huh. 
Uh, Jacob's is driving. Is witching hour? Do we turn to pumpkins? At yeah. <laughs> Jacob's Jacob's driving to Charlotte tomorrow, so he's oh, he's getting wow. all tired. Man, yeah. I love this time of year. It's awesome. This is the time of year. Like, you just got done stuffing your belly from Thanksgiving. You're still stealing your children's Halloween candy, and Christmas <laughs> is right around the corner. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's dangerous. Yeah, yeah but uh, self-control. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, I we've... look forward to seeing, hearing about what other things you guys produce or how how your season goes. Um, you know, this year and and um, you know, I, mine's the guy. I say the unending season. I never turn the incubator off, but yeah, um, you never know what's around the corner. But I wish you guys the best with your collections, and I want to say thank you again for for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. This is a great community. I can't think of a hobby or business that I would rather be involved in than this. And three fourths of it is is uh, the people that you meet along the way. It's it's a cool journey. Yeah, yeah. for sure. We're, well, we're uh, definitely glad you were able to come on tonight, Harley. Yeah, definitely get you on here again because I know I've got about a billion other questions yeah. I can talk about for about <laughs> six more hours. So. Yeah, well, well, we need to start. I'm gonna start writing them down. Yeah, we need like, start. Next time Harlan's on, we'll talk about <laughs> this and this and well, this. I and apologize. This. I know I talk like a machine gun, man. So um, <laughs> no, it makes I our like job easy. It's, it's all great. Yeah, we just get to listen. People aren't here to listen to us. They're here to listen to the people that we have on. Exactly. Well, I know it can be overwhelming when some some people first tune in. They're like, "Is this chatterbox?" Really <laughs> you know, when does he take a breath? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we appreciate it. Thank right. you guys again. Thanks it so much, Arlen. It was really fun. We'll do it again. Yes, sir. definitely. All right. Bye. All right. Take it easy. You guys have a great night. Thank you. Bye. You too. Bye. All right. Well, twenty episode twenty, man. That was felt like man. I don't know how much I talked through that one. That was, a, that was good, though. Like you said, it made our job easy. Makes our job very easy. <laughs> He'll tell you everything you want to know. Har- Harlan's just – Harlan's a great guy, man. That was, a, that was a fun episode. I'm glad he was able to come on. Finally. We've been, ta- Finally. Well, I've been talking to him about coming on for, since we started this yeah, thing practically. He's a, he's a busy guy, man. He is a very so busy guy. Gotta, so I talked to him on, like, Monday. It's Friday. And I was like, man, I don't know what you got man. going on this weekend, but yeah. we need somebody. And I think I think it's your it's your, it's your turn. <laughs> your number has been rung. But, I, yeah, I mean, I definitely want to talk to him more about the maternal incubation thing because I'm really thinking about doing that with my girl. Yeah. Um. Oh. He's calling back. He is. Let me turn it down. I'll call him back in a few when I'm done. Okay. <laughs> you have something else to say? I don't know. It'll be all right. Yeah. Sorry, buddy. I'll call <laughs> you back in a minute. <laughs> yeah, you might think we, we already stopped the show. Um, well, anyways. Carpet Fest is coming up. Yeah, Carpet Fest. Uh, we're going to have Ian Bessel on here in a couple weeks to talk more on that, get into more detail about shirts and things that will be going on with that and the raffle. Mm-hmm. Um, but Carpet Fest is February 9th officially, yep. I believe. Uh, it's going to be a Mel- Melrose, 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 Fro- Mel- <laughs> Melrose, Florida. Yeah. Um, at the terrestrial and arboreal yes. facility with the Bartolinis. Yes, very, very excited about that. Um, I'm bringing cigars. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we're going to have Ian Bessel on here in a couple weeks uh, to go into more detail about that. So if anybody's interested in Carpet Fest and getting detailed, the few details that I do have, feel free to message me or Justin or even uh, message Ian, Ian Bessel yeah, on There's a group you can Facebook. hunt down. <clears throat> yeah, there's, and there's, there's a Facebook page for everything. Um, if you're seriously interested in helping out or attending uh, Carpet Fest, let one of us know and we can add you to the group chat that we currently have going for it. Um, so 
but word up yeah that's episode 20 guys there's also quick talk of like, me and mark uh hager starting a contro show maybe next yeah, year justin's cheating i'm gonna start I know, cheating Bratz is getting me. his panties all in a bun in, in a wad <sighs> It's all right. I'm, like, well, I yeah, I'm gonna. It. I want to talk Riley into doing a carpet, do it. carpet python You'll specific podcast. You'll have to figure out how to work all this. No, I'm still gonna make you do it no. all. Yeah, I'm gonna make you do it all for us. You, you, you can call it. Riley can figure it out, and you can call <laughs> him. I fully support it. Whatever. I don't even want to. You're not supposed to like it. I thought we were a team. We have an open relationship. <gasps> Since it's when? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like I had tossed it. I was watching the last uh Port City Pythons uh from the ground up episode when it was live with uh the uh, Jim Harrison and I had mentioned it in the in the chat cuz we were talking about it and then Mark was in there as well and he was like, "Hey man, like you seriously want to do that?" And I was like, "Yeah, man. Let's make it happen." So cuz I mean I could talk condos every episode on this this show, but I do that because I know or I don't do that because I know that you just scoff and. <laughs> no, I just like, like oh, time about right. But at the same time, like you can't, like I've said before, you can't call it the Herpeticulture podcast and just yeah. have snakes and stuff. Yeah, so exactly. we try to change we it try up. To change it up, even though we're Morelia ads at heart. Mm-hmm. You know, we we try. I to do snakes every episode too, but I'm trying yeah. to keep people happy. Yeah. Well, not like. like I feel like a lot of our. Try view, to change I feel it like up. a lot of our viewers are snake people. I want though, there so, there is, yeah. but I want there to be value across the board right. for everybody in the yeah, hobby. Yeah, so. you're right. You're right. But, as always, this is Jacob Bratz with JLB Morelia. And this is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotic. And we are the Herpetoculture Podcast. Episode 20. Signing out. Deuces.